Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. I'm Martin Meeker, director of the center. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. This season, we're bringing to life stories about our home, UC Berkeley, from our collection of thousands of oral histories. Please join us for our fourth season, inspired by the university's motto, Let There Be Light, 150 Years at UC Berkeley. Here's episode one, Sleeping with the Light On, Housing and Community at Berkeley, produced by Oral History Center's Amanda Tweez. Berkeley, oldest and largest of the university campuses. You could live in a variety of student residence facilities on this campus, but it's more likely you'll live off campus or travel back and forth each day. The many worlds are here, within the complex world of a big, bustling campus. Like college campuses across America, moving day at UC Berkeley marks a pivotal moment in the lives of New Cal students. It's the beginning of their college careers. Think how much you're gonna miss me. Parents say tearful goodbyes, students anxiously meet roommates, and moving into on-campus dorms symbolizes becoming part of the campus community, becoming a golden bear. We've come to think of communal living as a tradition for students a rite of passage, and a valuable lesson in community building for young adults. Ruth Norton Donnelly, a student in the early 1920s, recalls her time at Cal. I think we learn more in living with each other than we could have learned in any other way. I learned to sleep with the light on, with the radio going, and with a card game going on in the room. I don't know a better way to find out these things than to live with a group of people who care about you. That's actually Shanna Farrell reading from a transcript of an interview with Donnelly in 1966. The scene she describes is a familiar one, but it hasn't always been the norm at Berkeley. For much of its history, the university didn't even have dorms. It took Berkeley years to address campus housing, and this issue became an important platform for student activists. From early housing cooperatives during the Great Depression to fights for racial and gender parity on campus, Housing has been on the front lines of the battle for student welfare throughout the university's history. Despite a few experiments with campus housing, it wasn't until 1929 that the school opened its first dormitory, Bowles Hall, which boarded about 200 students, all of them men. About a decade later, in 1942, Berkeley opened its first dormitory for women, Stern Hall, which accommodated just over 130 students. Both of these projects were funded through private donations, not the university budget. But two dorms couldn't house the entire student body, which was over 30,000. So students rented rooms at boarding houses, pledged into the Greek system, and joined co-ops. During the Depression, a weak economy meant Cal students had to compete with locals for affordable housing. Many of them turned to cooperatives like the University Student Cooperative Association, or USCA, These were communally owned units that the students ran themselves. Berkeley alum Marguerite Culp Johnston lived in the co-op at Stebbins Hall. When I came to Berkeley in 39, I had applied over a year before to the USCA co-op houses because that was the only low-cost housing around. Everything was very expensive compared with 
And that, uh, let's see, they had about 600 students, I think, then in the co-op. And there was one girl's house, so there were about 100, and about four or five men's houses together. But that was 24, 50 a month, three meals a day, six, seven days a week. And uh, I think then Bowles was running $60 a month, something like that. So it was less than half. This made Johnston one of the lucky ones. She says housing conditions at the time were miserable, and students were largely on their own. When we were in school, the university's stated position was, uh, we're not concerned with where students live. We provide the education, the students provide their own housing. This is, this is our sort of general policy. Johnston was a member of the Student Welfare Council and the Associated Students Executive Committee. She pushed back against this policy. All of us who were interested in student welfare and student housing were screaming about this thing. You know, here you, you have all these students living in hovels and living in basements and people charging exorbitant rents for nothing but a you know, pallet and toilet down the hall that doesn't flush and so forth. And, and um, promoting dormitories where kids could live healthfully. But while administrators debated whether to build more university-controlled dorms, the problems with housing intensified. This was especially true for international students and students of color. Without guaranteed university housing, these students faced discrimination in their off-campus searches. One solution to this discrimination was the expansion of the international house model that began in New York. The idea was to create a multicultural residence that would house international students and scholars, fostering intercultural connections. But when iHouse opened in 1930 on Piedmont Avenue in Berkeley, it faced pushback from the local community. Reverend Alan C. Blaisdale was the first director of iHouse. He recalls, uh, Realtors and others who own apartment houses uh, took the attitude that International House was to uh, relieve them of the problem of racial housing. I protested in one case to a realtor in regard to uh, prejudicial matters and refusal to rent to uh, nationality minorities and nationality groups. And his reply to me was, well, International House was built so that we would not have to be faced with this matter. And I said, on the contrary, International House was established to set the pattern for everyone to follow. Blaisdell wanted to show what inclusive housing could look like. IHouse wasn't just available to students of color, it was also co-ed. This policy defied social norms of the time and put IHouse directly in conflict with the university. Well, the rules of the university were that any recognized housing unit of the university could not house men or women. So that International House was never on the approved housing list of the university in those days. The Dean of Women's office cooperated in many ways, but they were basically opposed to this principle. The Dean of Women's office opposed co-ed housing because Berkeley, like other college campuses, was responsible for protecting the virtue of women undergrads. So to get around university regulations, iHouse became what Blaisdell describes as almost completely graduate student in nature. But it, it was a problem at the beginning Largely because no man or woman could live uh, in an approved boarding house where, or a rooming house or residence hall 
where men and women lived under the same roof. Stern Hall, that women-only residence the university built in 1942, was still the only dormitory for them to live on campus. Rosalie Meyer Stern funded the building and insisted on its decorations. A bright Diego Rivera mural and giant panda rugs. But the decor couldn't completely erase the austere environment that Stern Hall provided. Dorothy Walker, a former Stern resident, attributes this to the strict and paternalistic rules imposed on women students. It was also a very stifling environment. Uh, first of all, of course, there were the dean's rules at that time, which were very in loco parentis. Walker was a student in the 1940s when the university took that phrase, in loco parentis, very seriously. School administrators saw their role as surrogate parents for students, especially women. And in Walker's case, that meant a strict parent. Uh, women basically uh, could not uh, leave their dorms in the night in the evening unless they were going to the library and you had to be home uh, by 10.15 if you were going to the library. You could sign out uh, for an evening event, but basically if you were not home by midnight, basically you were locked out and you were in serious trouble. And there was a whole system of punishments and uh, a board you would meet with if you ever violated the rules, so it was very strict. The comparison to parental figures was so strong that students even referred to their chaperones as dorm mothers and house mothers. While some, like Walker, chafed under these watchful eyes, others embraced the bonds. The sorority was like a family. You don't go every place with your family when you're growing up, and yet there was always a family to come home to. That's Shanna Farrell, reading from Ruth Norton Donnelly's interview again. Donnelly lived in Sigma Kappa in the early 1920s and described it as an integral part of her Berkeley experience. Before Berkeley built more dorms, many students like Donnelly looked to sororities and fraternities for places to live on campus. But not everyone felt as welcome in the campus Greek system. Frank and Nami, whose parents were Japanese, arrived in Berkeley on the eve of World War II. When I started UC Berkeley in 1939, I stayed at the Japanese Students Club because the fraternities and the sororities would not allow us in. Many fraternities and sororities at Berkeley didn't admit Jews or students of color. So some students, like Anami, created their own communities. There was a Japanese Students Club, a special dormitory just for us. Mm -hmm. We used to call ourselves Japa Sapa Kai, J-A-S-C, Japanese Students Club. We wanted to make it sound like one of the fraternities. There were about 25 of us, I guess, Japanese-Americans. And like the fraternities, it was by invitation only. By 1942, two and a half years after Frank and Nami started school at Berkeley, he and other Japanese-American students were removed to internment sites away from the West Coast. Inami was eventually released, but he never returned to Cal. It took a concerted effort by students and the administration to push for desegregation of the Greek system at Berkeley. Jackie Goldberg was a Cal student and activist in the 1960s. She applied to live in two places, a co-op and a dorm. She didn't get into either. So Goldberg joined Delta Phi Epsilon, one of the few campus sororities at the time that accepted Jewish women. 
I was the Panhellenic representative. This means she sat on a council that made decisions for all campus Greek organizations. Along with Dean of Women, Catherine Toll, Goldberg came up with a plan to make the sorority pledging process more inclusive. We cooked this up in her office, getting all of the sororities to sign the non-discrimination pledge. Hmm. At first, her fellow Greek members weren't on board with the idea. They weren't going to, and they weren't going to basically because their nationals Nationals. controlled this decision. By the way, that's interviewer Lisa Rubens you hear in the background. And she and I said, well, these young women like to think of themselves as liberals, as not racist. Why don't we let them see the face of racism? So Goldberg and Dean Toll invited the national leaders of the sororities to a forum at the campus Panhellenic Council. We had them all come, and these southern white women just horrified these young girls by talking about their rights to pick their friends and their rights to pick whom they associate with. Goldberg hoped that her fellow Berkeley students, when confronted with the beliefs of those dictating membership policies, would break from the national practices. Yeah, and one of the sororities signed after those women left. They just didn't want anything to have anything to do with it. So they did all sign? They all signed. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. By the early 1960s, a post-war boom had expanded the UC system, forcing the university to finally build more extensive housing options. Of course, the fight for inclusion wasn't over. For students with disabilities, there were still barriers to campus housing, even with the new dorms. Where could a student in a wheelchair live? Or a student with a visual impairment? These were the questions Edward V. Roberts asked when he arrived on Berkeley's campus in 1962. He was the university's first student with severe disabilities. But it wasn't going to be easy. How about going to... The biggest obstacle became real soon. Where would I live? But I think we almost gave up because of that. Roberts contracted polio as a child, and the illness left him with quadriplegia. He needed housing that could hold the iron lung, which helped stabilize his breathing. He also needed attendance around the clock. In an era before the Americans with Disabilities Act, these accommodations made his housing search more difficult. It seemed like wherever we went, where it was though. Those places are too freaked out to kill with me. Finally, Roberts met Dr. Henry Bruin. Dr. Bruin was the medical director of the Student Health Service at Berkeley. He suggested that Roberts live at Cowell Memorial Hospital, an ivy-covered student infirmary on the east side of campus. Hmm. He said, why don't, why don't we open the hospital? Then you could live here. But I started saying, but I could live there like a dorm, right? I said, I, I know about hospitals. I don't want to live in a, in a hospital. And he said, we can work those things out. Roberts was worried about living at Cowell because until then, the hospital only temporarily housed students recovering from surgery or who had illnesses like measles. He was looking for a community of his own. Roberts was the first student to live at Cowell full-time, but he was not the last. Over the next decade, many others came to call the hospital home as part of the Cowell Residence Program. Their quest for housing informed the disabled rights and independent living movement on campus, which began in the late 1960s. Then, in 1972, 
UC Berkeley students with disabilities pushed for even greater inclusivity by advocating for off-campus housing. This became the Center for Independent Living. It took nearly 100 years for Berkeley to build the large-scale student housing we now associate with undergraduate move-in day. Although a 2016 survey from Berkeley's Office of Planning and Analysis reported that the number of Cal freshmen who experienced inconsistent access to housing is at 8%, challenges remain. And the fact that the Bay Area has the most expensive rental market in the country directly impacts Cal students. But housing has improved at Berkeley. Blackwell Hall, Berkeley's newest dorm, opened just in time for the 2018 school year. And in a recent message, Chancellor Carol Christ reinforced her commitment to expanding student housing. The ongoing challenge of student housing highlights the long struggle to create community at Berkeley. But the history of student housing at UC Berkeley also demonstrates the key roles Cal students and administrators played in pushing for social justice on their campus and in their community. Which brings us back to moving day here at UC Berkeley, where a new class of freshmen are building their own campus community and defining the issues that will shape their experiences and the mark they leave on Cal. This podcast was written and narrated by Amanda Tweez, with assistance from Shanna Farrell, Francesca Fenzi, and Oral History Center staff. Editing by Francesca Fenzi, and special assistance by Ali Sherodis. Digitization by David Dunham and student employees. The Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett, and additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to the Bancroft Library. All interviews in this episode are from the Oral History Center collections. To learn more about these interviews, visit our website listed in the show notes. I'm Martin Meeker. Thank you for listening to the Berkeley Remix, and please join us next time.